Thank you. Good morning. Well, I tell you, the music in this church is almost enough to make me a Pentecostal. The last time um, I spoke to you, I spoke on the subject, the very difficult subject of Old Testament violence. And uh, when Danny asked me to preach this time, I thought, you know what, I need to, I need to come back this time with something that's kind of Christian light, something that's a little softer, like a little, little more feel good. And so I suggested to Danny, I said, how about I do John 4? And he was kind of, hmm, okay, whatever. And, uh, you know, uh, I was feeling pretty good about it anyway. And, um, and then... Um, the work of Fixed Point Foundation, uh, listen, we take on all the bad guys uh, in the culture, and that means maybe the atheists or, in this case, uh, Muslims. We do a fair amount uh, focused in that direction. And I'm sitting in my office, and I'm watching BBC kind of out of the corner of my eye as I'm working. And um, I am seeing news of what has taken place in Kenya, the 148 students who are shot and killed there, Christians being thrown overboard um, in the Mediterranean. And um, I send an email to Danny or a text, and I say, hey, Danny, um, you know, listen, I, I know I did Old Testament violence last time, and I know I should probably come back this time with something that's a little softer and lighter, but I really think I need to address the issue of Islam. And Danny sent back this response. I'm smiling because this is what I wanted you to preach on when I asked you to preach. But I wanted you to go where God was leading. So glad you caught up with God and me. <laughs> so I'll trust that the message this morning is from above. In 1934, Winston Churchill made this declaration to Parliament. Germany is arming fast, and no one is going to stop her. I dread the day when the means of threatening the heart of the British Empire should pass into the hands of the present rulers of Germany. I dread that day, but it is not, perhaps, far distant. In 1936, in spite of the denunciations of his colleagues and the media elites of his day, he declared Hitler is arming more strenuously more scientifically and upon a larger scale than any nation has ever armed before. For this, he was called a warmonger. But Churchill was, we now know, prophetic. France, Great Britain, America, and even the USSR ignored these warnings. Yes, they eventually conquered uh, the Nazis, but at an enormous cost of some 55 million lives. Hitler admitted that as late as 1936, the Allies might have defeated him easily had they had the courage and the backbone to do so. The days, ladies and gentlemen, in which we live are not so different from those of Churchill and the 1930s. In ISIS and in Islamic fundamentalism, the Christian church, and I would argue the West itself, face the greatest threat to its existence since Nazi Germany and the Cold War. And like those times, we're sleepwalking through it. The unwillingness of politicians to see what is clearly happening is extraordinary. 
Not only does Obama refuse to see the causal link between Islam and terrorism, Western leaders and Western media in general do not see it, or at least they will not acknowledge it. In the 1930s, it was chiefly the persecution of Jews that went ignored by Western media and governments. Today, it is not only the Jewish people, but Christians, most of all. According to Spectator magazine, which is a uh, UK uh, magazine, quote, the global war on Christians remains the greatest story never told in the 21st century. I continue to quote. According to the International Society for Human Rights, a secular observatory based in Frankfurt, Germany, 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed at Christians. Statistically speaking, that makes Christians by far the most persecuted religious body on the planet. I continue to quote. According to the Pew Forum, between 2006 and 2010, Christians face some form of discrimination in a staggering total of 139 nations, which is almost three-quarters of the countries on the earth. According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Massachusetts, an average of 100,000 Christians have been killed in what the Center calls a situation of witness each year for the past decade. That works out to 11 Christians killed somewhere in the world every hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year for reasons related to their faith. Continuing to quote, in effect, the world is witnessing the rise of an entirely new generation of Christian martyrs. The carnage is occurring on such a vast scale that it represents not only the most dramatic Christian story of our time, but arguably the premier human rights challenge of this era as well, end quote. The primary oppressor of Christians and Jews and others is Islam. The Archbishop of Erbil, which is in Iraq, Bashar Warda, recently said the threat posed by ISIS was enough to bring about, quote, the extinction of Christianity as a religion and as a culture in Mesopotamia. I read that quotation buried on page 13 in the British daily paper, The Independent. It was two tiny paragraphs. I was sitting in a hotel and I thought, my heavens, you know, the first, the first 12 pages are, are of, you know, I don't know, Justin Bieber or some nonsense. And then here, buried in the back, is a man saying that Christianity as a religion faces the possibility of extinction in the place where it was born. The recent slaughter of 148 Christians in Kenya was no accident. The university was carefully staked out to uh, observe where Christians gathered. They were then separated out and murdered. This is what they did. They wanted to see where the Christians gathered, where they prayed, where they had their Bible studies, and then they sought them out specifically and killed them. On that same trip in London, I met with a, uh, a longtime friend of mine, a man by the name of Jay Smith. Jay calls himself a polemicist, and so you'll know what I mean by that. Jay isn't simply one who defends the Christian faith, but he goes after 
He goes after those who would, uh, who would attack it. And in this case, Jay is a guy who um, is a, um, an evangelist to Muslims, radicals in London. London is a kind of hub for Islamic radicalism in the West. We spend a fair amount of time there. And I sat down with Jay to talk with him about this very question of Islam as religion of peace. This is what he had to say. <coughs> Islam is a religion of peace. What do you mean these people are following the Quran? I would suggest that everybody says that Islam is a religion of peace. A religion must have a revelation to support it. Uh, you, otherwise, it's just your opinion. It's a religion of peace. Where do you go to find out uh, uh, Islam? What is it defined by? It's defined by a book modeled by a man. The book is the Quran. The man is Muhammad. So I would, in, I would, and I say this to most every Muslim that tells me this. Can you show me one verse in the Quran that says you're to have peace with me, a Christian? Now, I've asked that for 33 years. In 33 years, no one has been able to show a verse in the Quran that says you're to have peace with me. Oh, you'll find verses on peace with other Muslims, but not with Christians and certainly not with Jews or pagans or the idolaters. So there's the problem. There's no verse in the Quran that says to love your enemy like we have in Matthew chapter 5. There's no verse in the Quran that comes close to what we have in an example of Jesus Christ as a man of peace. If you want to just ask what Muhammad did, just take a look at his life. Look and see what he did between 624 and 632, the last eight years of his life. Look and see what he did to the Jews living in Medina, the three major Jewish tribes, the Banu Kainuka, the Banu Nadir, the Banu Qurayza family. Throw throughout the first two tribes in 624, 625, in 627, he then confronted the last remaining Jewish tribe, the Banu Qurayza, after 21 days of confronting them, he then had all 800 men brought out, gave them spades, had them dig their own trenches, and then he cut their throats in one afternoon. 800 men in one afternoon. Took the women as concubines for his men and the children as slaves. Now, you don't have to trust me. I could be making this up. Go read Ibn Hisham. Read Ibn Isak. Read Al-Wakidi. Read Al-Bukhari. And read Al-Tabari. I've given you five sources for that, that one uh, afternoon cutting off the heads of the Banu Qurayza. I've given you five sources from three different genre of the, what we call the Sunnah of the Prophet. These are their own traditions. These are their own stories. These are the earliest stories of Muhammad's life. So if you're going to say Islam is a religion of peace, I'll say prove it. And to prove it, you need to go back to your Quran and show me where there's a verse on peace. A religion must have revelation, he says. Um, for us, that revelation is the Bible, and it is uh, um, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jay rightly says, in order to understand Islam, you must understand their revelation, the Quran, um, which is modeled by the man Muhammad, which, as he lays out, did not, did not champion a religion of peace, though we were told this repeatedly. We're also told that the, those groups that are committing atrocities, that they're not really representative of true or real Islam. According to Jay, this is simply not so. He went on to tell me that ISIS, for instance, is more Muslim than the so-called moderates because they take the Quran very seriously. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the enigmatic leader of ISIS, possesses a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD in Islamic studies from the University of Baghdad. It is Baghdadi who has ordered the carefully choreographed and filmed executions of prisoners. Taking a page straight out of the Quran, prisoners are not only beheaded, which is ordered by the Quran, but also caged and immolated alive, as in the case of the Jordanian pilot. 
Finally, trash was dumped upon the, his, uh, his charred remains. This is Islamic teaching. Baghdadi did not make this up. And ladies and gentlemen, it's important that you understand when you hear that uh, often when these things are brought up in media circles, somebody will inevitably say, much to my frustration, they will say, ah, well, you know, Christians had the Crusades and the Inquisition and, you know, the Salem witch trials. There's a major difference. Violence done in the name of Muhammad and the Quran is perfectly consistent with Islamic teaching. Violence done in the name of Jesus Christ is not. Do you see the distinction? You see, whether or not so-called radical Islam is the representative of the Islamic faith is irrelevant. That it is a representative of that religion is undeniable. It simply won't do to characterize ISIS, the Taliban, Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah as fringe elements of Islam. These groups occupy whole countries, not just a mosque or two. And yet, again, what we often see portrayed in, uh, in the media is that they'll refer to groups like this, and then inevitably we will end up seeing uh, a, a graphic of the Westboro Baptist Church group. There are 40 members of the Westboro Baptist Church. And to my knowledge, they're not beheading people, as hateful as they may be. Furthermore, the data indicates that these groups enjoy a great deal of support among Muslims globally. A Pew Research survey found that only 57% of Muslims have a negative view of Al-Qaeda, and only 51% have a negative view of the Taliban. A February 2015 poll of British Muslims found that 27% were, quote, sympathetic with the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris. The BBC headline read, an overwhelming majority of British Muslims opposed the use of violence. Now, when I read that, I thought, good. And then, when I saw that it was 27%, I was alarmed. That translates to roughly 700,000 British Muslims alone. Imagine if one in four Christians were sympathetic with abortion clinic bombings. I dare say the headline would not read, an overwhelming majority of Christians oppose the use of violence. No, we would hear about the potential terrorists in our midst. According to the Global Terrorism Index, there has been a five-fold increase in fatalities from terrorist acts since 9-11. Four groups are responsible for most of these. All of them are Islamic. The point, I hope, is clear. The continual insistence that these terrorist groups are in no way expressions of real Islam is nonsense. The line of reasoning presupposes that the religion is monolithic. No religion, no philosophy is. Now, are all Muslims terrorists or would-be terrorists? Of course not. But if we are to win the war on terror, we must come to terms with the fact that theirs is a religion with a disproportionate number of adherents who believe that when Islam is practiced faithfully, it means that non-Muslims must convert, pay a tax, or die. Quran Surah, um, verse 2, 193, reads, <clears throat> And fight them, them meaning unbelievers, 
until there is no persecution and religion is only for Allah. Surah 839 says exactly the same thing. Iranian emigre and journalist Amir Tahari wrote in the New York Post, there can be no peace between Islam and what is not Islam. What he meant was this, there cannot be peace between Muslims and non-Muslims if said Muslims take the Quran seriously. Just as Adolf Hitler made his intentions known to the world in Mein Kampf, Muslim terrorists are following a similar playbook called Governance in the Wilderness, which states clearly their objective, to kill the Jews and to bring the world under Islamic rule. Until that is achieved, unbelievers are to be harassed, terrorized, and given no peace. They must be made to know that there could be no peace until they submit to the will of Allah. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, why has the Western response to this been so bad? Well, like the Allies in the lead-up to the Second World War, there's a comprehensive failure on the part of Western leaders to understand the nature of this threat. And I would suggest to you that that is for three reasons. Now, again, so you understand, it isn't simply a case of, of Obama David Cameron of the UK, Francois Hollande of France, um, uh, Angela Merkel of Germany. They all more or less say the same things. Why is this? Well, I think there are three reasons, all of which can be related to Christianity's waning influence in the West. The first of these is secularism. Secularism renders the West ill-equipped to understand an absolutist religious mindset like that of Islam. You see, because from a completely secular point of view, this life is all you get. There just aren't things that are worth dying for. And the assumption is that other people believe that as well. Um, all conflicts are understood to be misunderstandings. People, it is assumed, always act out of rational self-interest. This, of course, isn't true. You see, because from a Christian point of view, we understand. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? We have a sin nature. But the assumption of secularism is very different. So, just as the Allied governments ignored Hitler's speeches and his writings, where he was laying out very clearly what his intentions were, we're doing the same thing today. The current Ayatollah in Iran, who was the real power in that country, he tweets, tweets, death to Israel and death to America. At the very same time that our negotiators are sitting at the table with Iranians talking about nuclear weapons. BBC placed two clips side by side that I thought were really remarkable. And it was of the Obama press conference after these talks and the Iranian press conference. And here's what Obama said. Iran will no longer enrich uranium. Here's what the Iranian press conference said. We will continue to enrich uranium. Now, if you begin to see the comprehensive failure to understand what we're dealing with. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a lecture by a, 
uh, a very learned um, businessman, but a businessman who's not a man of faith, um, does not understand uh, the Christian faith, much less uh, religion in general. And his talk was on uh, terrorism in the Middle East. And one of his graphics, one of his graphics showed um, the Middle East and it, it showed um, highlighted portions of the Middle East where Al-Qaeda is operating. And his graphic read at the bottom, Al-Qaeda franchises. I almost fell on the floor. It was like we were talking about pizza huts. Um, from his point of view, these were, uh, these were simply uh, kind of startup businesses. And that, that these people were motivated by um, economic considerations, not religious ones. It's a complete failure to understand what is driving them. The second reason I think we fail to understand the nature of the threat that we face is political correctness. I'll give you uh, a rather startling example of this. Um, also in the UK, you can, you can uh, um, Google search this. Um, there has been a scandal in a place called Rother, Rotherham, Rotherham, R-O-T-H-E-R-H-A-M where it has been discovered that for more than a decade, um, British girls, the total at this point is about 1,400 British girls have been systematically sex trafficked by Pakistani Muslims. Now, um, the London Times uncovered this and has exposed a much deeper problem. It turns out that the police knew about this for a very long time. But they were afraid to say anything about it for fear of being called Islamophobic. So they said almost nothing. Finally, when it was uncovered and was reported very courageously by the London Times, the Times nonetheless reported it as um, trafficking that was being done by quote-unquote Asians. Well, as you can imagine... Asians in Britain became rather upset with this, um, namely Sikhs and um, uh, Chinese and others who said, whoa, hold on, we didn't do this. Let's be clear, in every instance, these were Muslims, and they were mostly Pakistanis and a few Afghans. Um, They're now discovering that cells like this are operating all over the country. But again, political correctness has served to paralyze people from seeing the truth of what is happening. Because, you see, from a PC point of view, you have to affirm all cultures as equally valid. You have to affirm diversity for diversity's sake. You must be tolerant to the point of idiocy. And this is what is taking place. The third reason, I think, for the West's failure to recognize what is happening is the West's abiding hatred for Christianity. You know this as well as I do. We see it all the time. Um, Christianity is the only religion in the Western world that is that it is politically correct to discriminate against. We're seeing this, of course, with the gay lobby. We're seeing this with lawsuits against bakeries. I mean, we're seeing this in, uh, in oh so many ways. I've wondered, by the way, if um, the left would seek to make, um, say, uh, Muslim bakeries um, produce um, gay wedding cakes. But anyway, we'll wait to see on that. Let's see. A little quiz. What do the following have in common? 
9-11, the 7-7 subway bombers, the shoe bomber, bombing of the USS Cole, the Charlie Ebdo arson, the Charlie Ebdo shooting, the beheading of the woman in Oklahoma, the Fort Hood shooting, the shooting in the Kenyan University, the throwing of Christians overboard in the Mediterranean. This isn't rocket science, people. Now, the atheists that I debate, the way they answer that question astounds me, amuses me. They will say that the problem is religion. I say, no, let's be clear. These aren't Muslims, I mean, excuse me, these aren't Amish who are doing these things. It wasn't Amish or primitive Baptists who were blowing up subways in London. That's not what was happening at Fort Hood. This is a specific religion that is doing this. This was Islam. But you see, ignoring the connection between Islam and terrorism suits the left's domestic agenda. Because Islam is, for the moment, a foreign threat. But Christianity is a domestic threat to the left's social agenda. About three weeks ago, um, a columnist writing in the New York Times said, I was astounded by this, even in the Times, he said that Christianity is the last hurdle to the complete fulfillment of the LGBT agenda. You see, they have identified the enemy and said that is who we must go after. So it seems to me that the the thought here is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I don't know how many of you saw Bill Maher's interview on Charlie Rose um, that took place, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago. Um, Bill Maher is not a guy that I like a whole lot. But I'll have to tell you, he was right on. Charlie Rose refused to see and to acknowledge what Maher called a connecting tissue between Islam and terrorism. And he laid out all the facts quite clearly. And Charlie Rose refused to see it. And then what did he do? He said, well, but Christians do these things too. And what an odd place to find Mar in, defending the Christian religion. Mar said, you know, I don't know of any Christians who are doing these things. I don't know of Christians who are doing honor killings. I don't know of Christians who are suicide bombing. I don't know of Christians who are beheading people. How crazy. Some of this, I think, is a result of the sort of Muslims that media tend to put forward. I tend to be one of those guys that is on the uh, the call list um, to occasionally appear on radio or television. And I got a call from CNN a couple of years ago, CNN International, if I would go on TV and debate a Muslim. And since CNN International, which is aired globally, you don't see it here, but it's, it's what you would see in Riyadh, it's what you'd see in Beijing, Since they're based in London, I was kind of excited because I thought they'll be able to get a real Muslim. I mean, I'll really be able to debate a true believer. So um, I get ready. It's six minutes. You know, the the potential pitfalls of something like that are startling. (laughs) But uh, in any case, I go on 
And I find that I'm debating that the woman I'm going to be debating, we're going to be talking about free speech. The woman that I'm debating is um, kind of a hippie Muslim from North Carolina. She wasn't born Muslim. I think she was, I don't know, we'll say Methodist. And um, if there are any Methodists here, it's just a joke. She was as American and as fuzzy Western as I am. It was a hug fest. She agreed with me on every point. Yes, I believe in free speech. I believe in equal rights. And I kept saying again and again, yes, but your religion doesn't. Yes, but your religion doesn't. Yes, but look at how your religion treats women. And then I said to her, name one country, one Islamic state that believes in free speech. Silence. But this is the sort they put forward because they're more comfortable with this sort. The Christian response. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm fighting a bit of a cold. What should we do? I've laid out the problem, and some of you are saying and thinking, quite rightly, what can I do about this? What what, what is your call to action? Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize that this is a global war that has been declared by Muslims on non-Muslims, Christians and Jews most of all. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to wake up. We do. If you, would, if you have seen the things that I've seen and been the places where I've been, I've sat with um, Turkish pastors. It was in Turkey. And I sat with, with men who came to Christ through simply by reading a Bible, managing to get a hold of a Bible, Muslims who are now preaching and teaching the gospel to other Turkish men and women and their churches were being firebombed and they just would turn right around and open up the doors and go at it again. Incredible. And I feel like I look at my own life and I can be so distracted with the things of this world with materialism, with all the, the things that uh, are on offer to us, or as Neil Postman put it, we amuse ourselves to death. And meanwhile, our Christian brothers and sisters are being slaughtered around the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. We must wake up. Secondly, we must pray for the persecuted church. Here shortly, I will invite you to come down and do that very thing. We must pray for them. That You know the image I can't get out of my head? Are those 21 Egyptian Christians in those yellow, or those orange jumpsuits, I'm colorblind, those orange jumpsuits, kneeling on the beaches in Libya who would not surrender their faith in Jesus Christ. Beheaded. We must pray for them. At this moment, there are people exactly like them by the thousands who are in cages, who are in dungeons, who are in pits for Jesus Christ. It is our mission. It is our calling. We must prepare. In the words of our Lord, we must work while it is day, for night is coming. John chapter 9, verse 4. 
We must work the work of him who has sent. Uh, rather, uh, the, the Lord said we, he, he must do the work of him who sent him, for night is coming. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the, the sun is getting low on the horizon. And what that verse means is it means seize the opportunities and freedoms you have now to prepare for the time will come where you won't be able to. Prepare. The Turkish pastors that I mentioned before were begging me for anything in English that they could use in terms of commentaries, Bibles, any resources that they could use that they could then translate into Turkish. I mean, these were people who understood what it meant to work while it is day for night was coming. They were in night. You and I are in, in, uh, in, in dusk. In 1957, Sputnik went up. Do you realize that when Sputnik went up, there wasn't a single Russian expert at the State Department? Not one. There were no Russian language, uh, Russian studies programs in our universities. The United States realized we are faced with a potential global war with an implacable enemy. And do you know what the United States did? Most of you do predates me. I was born in 67. But um, what the United States did was we began to beef up our curriculums in universities, even in high schools where Russian language, Russian history, Russian culture was being taught. Mathematics and science were emphasized. Russian experts were acquired. And the United States won the Cold War. We need to prepare Jay told me in that same interview, he said, you know, there's not a single seminary in the United States that has a meaningful um, Islamic program. He said there were a couple, but they became fearful and they, they uh, ended those programs. He says, now there are some that have some classes, but not like a major, not an intensive. And he says, well, Larry, I'm dealing with Muslims who know the Bible, who speak English, and they know our culture. We're not taking them seriously. We need to prepare. I recall an old professor of mine, a man by the name of Michael Foote. Michael Foote was an extraordinary man. He's the only man mentioned by his real name in a John le Carré novel. But I was privileged to have him. And when he was a student at Oxford University, he told me that he was a pacifist and an atheist And he said that he attended a lecture given by Winston Churchill on their campus in the mid-1930s. This was well before Churchill became prime minister. And that Churchill was this time, um, they thought of as a man who was well past his time. His, uh, his, His glory days were behind him. He said, and Churchill was there to tell us about a coming general European war, which none of us believed was coming. And he said, so we went and we mocked him. We heckled him. We made fun of him because we were were the young and the the best and the brightest. And here was this old man who had failed his entrance exam to Sandhurst three times. And he said, and I will never forget, Larry, what he said. He said he turned on the audience, all of us students. And he said, you may laugh at it now. But you won't be laughing when, in a decade, half of the young men in this room are dead. He said, you could have heard a pin drop. 
And he said, I can tell you now, 50 years or how many years later it was that he told me this story, that he was right. Half the men in that room did die and were dead a decade later. Now, I'm not making any such predictions here, but the principle applies nonetheless. We must prepare. We must not sleepwalk through what is happening. We must pray. We must not ignore the reality of the global situation. And that means that we must reclaim our courage and our faith. I bet I am told at least once a day, much to my embarrassment, of what a courageous man I am. Because I'll publish articles on gay marriage or on Islam or whatever in places like USA Today and the Atlantic, and I get loads of hate mail and threats. But why am I embarrassed by that? Because the bar for courage has been set so low. Really? Ladies and gentlemen, standing up for your faith is not an option. It is commanded. It's not just for specialists. You are commanded to proclaim and to defend your faith. I suggest to you that if we did, we would see a great awakening. But we have gone silent. I listened to a man a few nights ago who has converted from Islam to Christianity and who lives under something of a death threat now, whose own family tried to kill him. That's courage, ladies and gentlemen. What is it? Is it Matthew 19? Whoever has lost home, whoever has lost mother, father, brother, sister for my name's sake will be repaid tenfold, a hundredfold, I forget exactly how much, a lot. Here's someone who has suffered, suffered loss for the name of Jesus Christ. And we count it as courageous when one of us finds just a little bit uh, uh, of, of courage, if you will, to speak to the person in the cubicle next to us or over the backyard fence or at the water cooler. Ladies and gentlemen, We must reclaim our courage and our faith and proclaim the truth of the gospel. The churches in the build-up to World War II went silent. Silent. And that has happened in this country, but the church is a sleeping giant. I wouldn't say this in Britain. I definitely wouldn't say it in continental Europe. You're talking about a church in Britain that's about 5% at most. In the United States, by conservative estimates, evangelicals number about 35% of the population. That suggests to me that the situation we see in this country is one of the tail wagging the dog. It's time that we proclaim boldly the truth that Christians, their churches, mobilize to pray. And if we're to proclaim our faith, it's absolutely necessary that you know the Bible well enough to distinguish it from all others. There are a lot of mischaracterizations of the Christian faith these days, and that is largely due to the fact that Christians do not seem to know their Bibles or their history sufficiently to refute these mischaracterizations. 
Last week I debated uh, a well-known atheist, a man by the name of Michael Shermer. He's a likable guy, Californian. Um, He has written an outrageously uh, um, nonsensical book called The Moral Ark. I hope you're not watching, Michael, because this won't help your sales. In it, he argues that humanity is getting better. We're evolving, um, socially speaking. We're becoming morally better. And I said, you know, Michael, things might look that way in Pasadena, California, but about 6,000 miles to the east, it's not looking quite so rosy. These are the kinds of things people are saying. The whole of his attack in our debate, you can find these things on our website and at our table outside here um, and the full interview with Jay Smith. The whole of his attack upon Christianity consisted of mischaracterizations of the Bible. And he said, you know, multiple times he said, you know, the Bible, as you know, and he points to the audience, endorses rape and genocide. And I said, hold on just a second. Show me. Let's go through those passages. He changed the subject. He then moved elsewhere, and he says that the Bible endorsed, and I don't, can't recall all that he said, but it was all these kinds of things. And again and again, I kept saying, show me. I'll go through each one of those passages with you right now because the Bible does not endorse those things. You have confused what is merely reported in the Bible with what God himself endorses, and there's a big difference. But you see, all too often... These kinds of things are said, and people don't, people don't push back. They don't respond, and it's because they don't know their Bibles. So when someone makes these kinds of outrageous claims, they tend to get away with it and carry the day. The last piece I wrote for USA Today was just this sort of piece. I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm, as I say, I'm typing away, and, and I'm watching what's, uh, what's, what's happening on TV, and I say, Larry, don't pay attention. You, know, you, need to, you need to get ready for that next talk you have to give. And then finally, I just decided, I can't stand this any longer. And so I, I fire off a, an, an article for you, to USA Today, which you can find, which is called, I, I think they, they titled it, Islam and Christianity are not comparable. But I was making these kinds of points, all these absurd comparisons that you're trying to make, they just simply won't fly. The Bible and the Quran are not the same. Read them. The Christian religion and the Islamic faith are not the same. You know, the central difference between the Christian faith and Islam can be boiled down to this, the person of Jesus Christ. It is the doctrine of grace, ladies and gentlemen. They believe in a graceless God who calls for violence against those who don't accept him. There's as a, a, a religion of law where you do not know if you're going to heaven unless, of course, you go and blow yourself up. Then you're guaranteed all that and all the, uh, all the virgins too. The Christian faith is a faith of grace. We believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection in the person of Jesus. They deny it all. Jesus is just a prophet. That's where the argument must be waged. On the person of Christ. It seems like I'm mentioning London a lot here. And 
I suppose it's because we spend a fair amount of time there, and it's because, quite honestly, if you want to learn a lot about Islam, if you want to address it, Birmingham, Alabama is a bit of a backwater, at least for now. And um, while I was in London, I, uh, I met with another friend of Fixed Point, a woman who writes for the London Times. She's a very courageous woman. Her name is Melanie Phillips. In my opinion, she's one of the most insightful, one of the most brilliant cultural observers in the English-speaking world. And Melanie said this to me. She said, the only hope for the West is Christian revival. Now, why that is remarkable is Melanie is Jewish. And yet, Melanie is here arguing, she says, the traditional bulwark against barbarism in the West has been the Christian faith. And she said, Larry, secularism hasn't a chance with Islam. We're being steamrolled. And if Christians don't start finding their voices, finding their courage, and rediscovering the the meat of their faith, then we're done for. Commenting upon the Japanese surrender on the USS Missouri in 1945, Toshikazu Kase, the Japanese foreign minister and a signer of that surrender, wrote this to the emperor afterwards. After all, we were not beaten on the battlefield by dint of superior arms alone. We were defeated in a spiritual contest by a nobler idea. The real issue was moral, beyond all powers of algebra to compute. Now, if you know the full context of what Kasse is saying, he said he saw in America um, a, a rebar, if you will, um, iron, strength. And he said in the core of America, it wasn't, it wasn't just that they simply had more aircraft carriers and planes. He said this is a, a, this is a country who is, who is founded upon the bedrock of their faith, the Christian faith. And it was the Christian faith that defeated us. And he says, because I could tell you that where the tables re- uh, uh, turned in this surrender, it would not, it would not be uh, uh, nearly so amicable. We are engaged in a spiritual contest where Christianity is the nobler idea. Let us recall the power of God's word. Let us repent of our materialism, of chasing after everything that doesn't actually matter, and recall our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith is a people, our faith is a nation, and recall the power of God's word to change lives and to change whole nations. I'm reminded of the words of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. It's a great passage. Great passage. 
And Elisha um, is notified by his servant. He says, we are surrounded. The city is surrounded. We are done for. And Elisha prays. And he turns to this servant and he says, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Ladies and gentlemen, our God is real. He's not a God made with human hands or to be served by human hands. He is real, he is sovereign, he is mighty. And he responds when his people call on him and pray, believing in a God with a capital G. So let us put aside our fear. Let us put aside our, um, our shame and let us proclaim the truth of the gospel. I invite you now, I'm going to ask Danny to, um, to come down here and, uh, and join me. And um, we together invite you to come forward this morning and to pray for two things primarily. To pray for the persecuted church. Again, 100,000 Christians per year are dying for their faith. They need their brothers and sisters around the world to pray for them. So we invite you to come forward and to pray for that. And secondly, pray that the Lord will give us all courage to proclaim our faith in this culture, in this culture here. And let us pray to see a third great awakening. I agree with that, Larry. So I'm, we're just going to ask right now for, for those of you, just come here. I want to stand right over here. Thank you, Rick. Y'all just come down. And uh, we want to pray uh, for just a moment. I want to lift up uh, believers all around the world uh, that are being persecuted. Uh, Larry's statistics, in the moment that we have had worshiping today, 11 believers on average have uh, had their lives taken. And had their lives taken for one particular reason. It's because of their faith and because they're willing to stand for the Lord. And so we as a church, uh, we talk about this at times, but I think today is an excellent time for us to pray for them and lift up those around the world uh, at this time. Second of all, I agree with Larry. Let's pray about uh, reclaiming a boldness and being able to share our faith and to be able to make a stand uh, for Christ. And it starts right there in our schools. It starts in our neighborhoods, in our work, and uh, to be able to just stand for the Lord and uh, to be that witness and to show that courage uh, that we're called to do. And our hope and prayer is that there would be a great spiritual awakening that could take place here in our nation and then spread uh, around the world and see God do a, a great and mighty work. So I'm going to give just a moment as people are coming uh, this way. And um, what we're going to do is just take a few moments of, of just silence uh, and letting you pray. And that's why you're down here. For those that are sitting in the pews, I want you to be praying too. And let's lift up those. And after a couple of moments, then I will voice a prayer uh, for all of us. So let's take these moments and let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for a sobering message of reality as what's taking place around our world. And in these moments, we want to lift up our Christians and brothers, our Christian brothers and sisters all around the world that are experiencing persecution, who every day live their life wondering if there may be an arrest or there may be a beating, there could even be a, a killing that would take place because of their faith. And Lord, so much from our mindset, our first prayer would be that you would protect them and that there would be no persecution. But then it seems the more we talk to those who've been persecuted, they tell us in the West to pray that they would have boldness in the face of their persecution. And that, um, Lord, that what that persecution does, it gives them the opportunity to stand for you and stand for the person of Jesus Christ. And they've asked us to pray that those who persecute them would see the love and the power of Christ in them and that they would come to know Christ in the midst of that. And so, Lord, that is our prayer. And we pray for them and pray for their families and pray that they will stand strong and be bold in their witness of Christ and that your Holy Spirit would so embolden them that you give them the right words to say and the right actions to take. And so we as their brothers and sisters here in the West, we lift them up to you and we pray for them. And then, Lord, we want to take that next challenge, and that is that we would be emboldened in our own witness, encouraged in our own stands. And, Father, we know that a part of that is that we just need to learn your word, read your word, understand what your word says. And so every one of us can do that. And just learn more and get a better understanding. And so when people come, Father, we can, we can courageously talk to them and share with them about the great love and the grace and the hope that we can have through Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray for our church and our church members. We pray for those that are online that are, that are listening to us right now, that even as they are praying, that you would embolden them to be able to make that stand for the gospel and for us to be courageous. And, Father, we pray for a spiritual awakening to take place. And may that happen in our nation. And, Lord, may we see in a mighty movement of your Holy Spirit begin to come across this nation. May it begin in the church, and then may it move from outside the church and begin to touch lives. And let's see a wonderful revival again. So, Lord, that is our prayer on this day. And we take these prayers and we lift them up to you in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.